The Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Bike Karma Bicycle and Cycling Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show is to bring bicycle-loving people from around the world together through sharing stories. It doesn't matter if you're a novice or an expert, whether you like to wrench, ride, or collect, or all of the above. If you've ever smiled about a bicycle, you're in the right place. This time we hear about repairing bicycles via a canal boat in the UK. We connect the dots between cycling and fire. There's a brief plea to not make fun of people who fall down when they're riding their bikes that is, as usual, not political. And a man named Seven does our ABC Quick Check PSA. You have a lot of shows that you could listen to, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. During the pandemic, a lot of us found some creative ways to escape. One of those things that I did to escape sometimes was to watch these series. I think they were on Netflix or maybe on Amazon Prime, whatever. They were these series where people would have a narrow boat and they would go up and down the canals in the UK. I didn't really notice them too much when I was over there, but since then I've become fascinated. These canals are like roads of water that were built before modern roads and before trains really took over. They were to facilitate commerce and they had towpaths along the side because they would use animals often to move the barges up and down the canals. You can appreciate them for their natural beauty or for their engineering. In some cases, the canal goes over the road. Now just take that in for a second and try to imagine an aqueduct going over a road that has a canal boat moving along it. Where the elevation of the river changes, there's these elevators that bring these boats from one level of water up to another level of water and vice versa. So anyway, as I'm watching these shows and thinking of how I'd like to throw my bike onto one of these boats and go exploring, I started looking for a story somebody who had done something with bicycles and these narrow boats. I mean, most of these canal boats do have bicycles strapped to them somewhere, but somebody really brought those two parts of life together. And I found a story of somebody who started fixing bikes off of a canal boat. Well, I would say that bikes and boats are natural bedfellows, not just because it's such a great lifestyle to live on a boat and have a bike and be out there in the country and be between the cracks, you know, between those straight lines on which the city's designed. But also, they both bloody break all the time. So you've got to fix them both. So 
Hello, my name's Sean Lally. I'm director at Cycle Systems Online. I'm from Manchester in the United Kingdom. Once upon a time, I've travelled around quite a lot. I've lived in lots of places, cycled in lots of places, and I'm now incredibly lucky to live in the beautiful capital city of Switzerland, which is Bern. Well, one of the kind of funny cycling stories I've got, it's nothing too out there really, but it is in a sense that my four-year-old imagination has been crystallised into reality. So I'm from a cycling family, so my dad cycled, my grandparents cycled, my parents' friends cycled and were in cycling clubs and bike racing clubs. I've just grown up with it forever. And there's always pictures of cycling and books about cycling. And I remember being really, really young. So before I even moved to Manchester where I grew up, I was in a town called St. Helens in Lancashire for the first five years of my life. And I remember my dad showing me a magazine or a book with these black and white photographs of the Tour de France. He said, look at this, son, this is the Tour de France. This is the biggest bike race in the world. And they ride all around France. And the four-year-old Sean thought it was completely unsupported adventure. So I imagined that these people would set off from one place in France and ride around the whole thing on their own you know, sleeping in hedges, and you know, when you're little, you just have this imagination. Now, of course, when the tour came on TV with Phil and Paul, and uh, like everyone in the 80s, I got to see what it really was all about, and it was very different to my imagination. But now, we're speaking in 2021, and adventure racing has just become a thing. So this, um, this idea I had in my head, which um, I was quite disappointed wasn't reality, really has become a thing so maybe my magical reality had to create it somewhere well i've done adventure touring by myself when i was a bit younger but of late it's been with the family so i'm married to julia who is a co-director at cycle systems and i've got a son who is now 14 and we've done you know quite a lot of holidays together in New Zealand, uh, when my son was nine, so that would have been 2016-17, we went over to New Zealand for about three months, and we, rather than hire stuff, we just bought bikes and camping equipment and things. So in Auckland, capital city, there's these kind of groovy bike recycling places like you find everywhere that'll sell you a bike and then buy it back off you at the end. Okay, we were not the only people that do this. So we bought old cross bikes, old mountain bikes and camping stuff. And we just set off in search of adventure. And um, we found it. <laughs> Often when you are looking at something, especially on the other side of the world, and you're looking at the map routes and you're looking at the promo videos, and don't they make it look great? You know, so there's one ride we did called the Timber Trail, which is in the middle of the North Island. It's kind of almost rainforest, you know, these sort of wild, fern-filled forests, which are just full of nature. They're just real primary forest stuff, proper wilderness. And there aren't any animals in New Zealand that will kill you, but the land can definitely do for you. And it was quite a shock from coming from England where... 
really, yeah, you could get exposure up on Dartmoor or something or in the Lake District, but by and large, if you get into trouble, there's a pub around the corner, you know, there's a train station or a housing estate, there's kind of civilization. And what we found out in New Zealand is we were right out there on the Timber Trail and we're just massively, massively underestimated. The elevation, the distance, the, the rough terrain. We were on what were really quite shitty bikes because we weren't going to buy super expensive bikes in their second hands and steel and heavy and yada yada. And so what appeared to be a flat section on the climb was actually up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, just not a huge amount of elevation each time. So rather than having one mountain to climb, we it was mental. And we ended up, I think we got to the campsite around about eight o'clock at night. We'd expected we'd arrive mid-afternoon. So you imagine with a nine-year-old, my wife wasn't a regular cyclist, she was kind of a city cyclist. We were just absolutely wiped. And um, we had a car as well, you see, we bought an old banger car. And the idea was we'd do this supposedly easy route, then I'd cycle back to what the first campsite, pick up the car and gear, and set up the um, camp. And we realised when we got to this campsite that I'd be back about midnight, okay, if we did that. I thought, oh, we fucked this up. And also, a New Zealand campsite in the bush, you know, they're called... Um, Department of the Environment, I think, DOE campsites. They're like council-run campsites that are a couple of dollars to stay at for a night. But even the water there isn't just from the mains, so it's not safe to drink until you boil it and treat it, etc. And we literally had nothing. We were out of food, we were out of water, and we were just in the bush, miles from anywhere. And we were like, oh, you know, we've been through quite a few emotions through the day as well. And what was amazing is a few other people camping there and I just approached this guy who was uh, cooking around the fire, um, a hunter, and explained the situation. And he just said, oh, no worries, jump in the car, I'll take you to get your kit. And this, you know, when it turned out, it was kind of about a 100k drive for him on gravel roads, there and back to do it. And... I said to him, it's called Martin, from a wonderful place called Taranaki. And I said to Martin, it's pretty amazing that you just dropped cooking your dinner over the fire and just came to help out these complete strangers. And Martin said, yeah, well, it's the hunter's code. <laughs> and he, he said, we're out in the bush, deep in the bush, quite a lot. And these things happen. People have accidents, people make mistakes, and they end up in trouble. So the hunter's code is you always help people no matter what because the next person that might need help is you. And for us, that really represented New Zealand. You know, represent, that was pretty much the second week we got there. And we just had these kind of experiences again and again and again that Kiwis were incredibly practical. So Martin had been out hunting and he, I think he'd got himself a wild boar and he was cooking it up. Um, incredibly helpful, incredibly friendly, and very welcoming. So yeah, the people probably won't kill you, the animals won't kill you, but the land certainly could. Basically, in England and Wales, 
not connected, but also in Scotland and Ireland, um, there's a huge amount of inland waterways. So in the United Kingdom, there's something like four and a half thousand miles of waterways, inland waterways, both rivers and canals. And around about two and a half thousand miles of these are completely interconnected. Okay, so once you're into England and Wales, that is where you've just got this huge inland. Well, I won't, I won't call it a park because as you know, we'll talk about people live on the waterways as well as have holidays on them. And there's quite a lot of contention in terms of how they run and operate it in terms of liverboards, but kind of a wider issue. So the narrowboats that people either got holidays on or live on are based from the old working boats. So obviously all over the world there are barges, right? You know, ever since the dawn of civilization, people have towed goods up and down rivers and later canals on barges. And the English narrowboats was a type of barge which was built for the narrow inland waterways in England and Wales, and like I say, later on in other countries. Um, so the, the narrowboats themselves were six foot ten wide on average, um, originally towed by horses. So the path next to the river and canal, we all know the tow path because the horses towed the boats. And then later on with diesel engines as well. And in fact, there was kind of a golden age of canal transport where people would have a motor and a butty. So they'd have two boats, the motorboat and the butty thing, the, un the unpowered boat. And you still see pairs of butties going up and down the um, canal system now, often selling coal and wood and diesel and supplies to people who live on their boats now. So, you know, growing up in England in the 80s, 70s and 80s, as I grew up in Manchester, where there's absolutely loads of canals all around. So the canal was just always there. It's just part of the the landscape really and actually we kind of take that for granted but they were almost all filled in they were almost all lost because as you might imagine these were dirty industrial motorways of their day you know they were for moving goods and in fact when you read books and such and articles about the old days when people were moving freight up and down the canals kind of Joe public wouldn't be welcome there people said this is where we work go away, you know, and it was pretty rough, you know, because these people were going up and down Victorian Britain trying to make a living on the canals in an incredibly unequal and unfair society, so they were often just about making enough to survive, often not even that, and people would starve to death if the rivers and canals froze, so people would fight each other first through the lock, they would literally be punch-ups on the, on the towpath, so it wasn't the sort of place you'd go for a pleasant walk in Victorian Britain and uh, 18th century Britain. However, the narrow boaters, even after a big puncture, they'd all be together in the pub that evening. It's quite a tight-knit community as well. Essentially, once transport moved to rail, and then later to, to road, as we know, we get into the early 20th century and canals were just rubbish dumps. You know, they were an eyesore. They were part of the post-industrial wasteland. And I think especially, you know, coming up to after World War Two, when so much of Britain was bombed and there's the Marshall Plan and it's like, right, let's rebuild, let's modernise. 
so much happened in Great Britain after World War Two. You know, the Labour government, National Health Service, welfare state. You know, a completely different country to one my grandparents grew up in. You know, and getting rid of the canals was a mission for a lot of people, just like they've got rid of a lot of the old branch lines of the railways. There was a very small, very committed group of uh, activists and campaigners from all sorts of social classes, from incredibly wealthy classes through to labourers and builders, people who just loved the canals. What happened is they started navigating the canals on all sorts of old boats they'd renovated or built because there was a law that if an inland waterway was being used as navigation, it couldn't be filled in. So while many did get filled in and covered over and such, thousands of miles of waterways were safe. Uh, so I grew up having these canals to cycle down, so me and my friends would you know, go off on our bikes. And if you lived in an urban area, or a su suburban area like I did, you could escape to the countryside down the canals. Completely traffic-free, uh, it's great, you know, you'd go for walks with your mates, you'd go fishing, sometimes you'd throw your mates in the canal, that kind of thing. It was just part of it, and we'd see these boats, these colourful, they're often very colourfully painted, uh, narrow boats, bikes on the roof, you know, bags of coal on the roof. So it was always just a thing that was around. When I was about 20, I left the city, I bought a camper van, you know, hashtag van life these days, but I just got the camper van and went off into the countryside, you know, living that kind of alternative life. So I lived in vans, I lived in caravans, trailers, yeah. Um, I lived in what we call benders, um, or the gypsies call rod tents, which essentially is a homemade structure that you, you coppice hazel poles, and then you put a tarpaulin over the top, and if you do it in style, you put in a wood burner and a cooker and make a floor out of pallets. So I was quite used to living in a variety of dwellings. You can imagine me at the time, dreadlocks, crusty hippie, you know, that was me in my 20s, right? So with the narrowboats, my wife and I, when we got married in 2002, we had the opportunity to move to London. I've been in the countryside for years. And Julia was a playwright and director as well for theatre. And she got the opportunity to write and direct a professional play in London, which is really exciting, you know, doesn't come up very often. But we were like, how the hell are we going to afford to live in London? Right? You know, very expensive even back then. And we realised that the narrowboats was the way to do it. And in fact, lots of our hippie friends had already got narrow boats because they're incredibly affordable. So I know people that have bought boats for a thousand pounds or less. And you've got a home. And not only that, it's a movable home as well. So you've got that kind of nomadic existence that we enjoyed very much in our 20s. We got a narrow boat. We bought it in the Midlands in a place called Rugby, where, of course, rugby was invented, I guess, at some point. And we cruised on down the Grand Union Canal to London. Now, there was internet in 2002, but it was kind of, you go to the internet cafe to do your emails. You know, you got to email your mum or something on your Hotmail account. There was no mobile internet then. You bought a guidebook. You know, there were these red guidebooks that you bought that would tell you 
the navigation and where to go and where the dangerous weirs were and where the good clubs were, that kind of thing. And a friend of mine, James, who I'm still friends with, James Dyke, he had been on the boats for a good few years at this time. And he said, look, I'll come on that cruise. I'll show you the ropes. And it was kind of exciting to just set off like that, you know, so it's a completely new experience. A friend of ours helped us come up there from Devon and we got to this basin in rugby. And he said, oh, isn't it peaceful? Because it's kind of a world apart in Lum Waterways. And it's you're normally away from the roads and the hustle and bustle. Um, so that was the first impressions. And we found that it was, but it had a life of its own. So James, like myself, is a musician. I play traditional Irish music. My wife does. James does. That's what we do. And we were cruising down the canal on the very first day that we'd lived on a boat. We had this amazing boat called William. And we were cruising down the canal. And there's a bunch of people, proper reprobates, you know, sat on the towpath with a fire, playing music around the fire. And James said, stop, stop, pull over, pull over. And there we were, pulling levers and moving the tiller completely inexpertly. We probably crashed into the bank. But we actually met some of James's friends there, one of which was actually a guy called Buzz Collins, who tragically is no longer, he's no longer with us. He took his own life um, a few years after this. That's really sad. But here was Buzz at his best. In fact, Buzz was the nephew of Shirley Collins, who's a very famous English folk singer. So we pulled in and there was Buzz to play music around the campfire with a few other friends, a guy called Andy Badger and a few others I can't remember. And we just stopped and we got out the beers and we got out the instruments and it was under the stars. And that was like, oh, wow, we're living the dream, you know, or home. <laughs> and it was very different to that suburban life that I grew up with, you know. That was our introduction to life on the narrowboats. So we cruised on down the Grand Union Canal, meeting all sorts of people. It wasn't like the kind of new traveller thing, people living in buses and ambulances, where it was very much kind of one sort of person, hedonistic, often vegan, you know, that kind of uh, crusty hippie scene. The narrowboats was policemen, bankers, crusty hippies. It was a whole selection of different people when it made it for me even more interesting you never knew who you'd be mooring up next to so we cruised down the grand union canal past these big palatial houses with helicopters in the back garden past crusty squats which were full of people living on the edge of society and they just moored up in this woodland and we approached london obviously capital city and i had a bit of trepidation because it's like well is there going to be trouble on the towpath? Because certainly in Manchester, the canal is not somewhere you'd go at night. No way. Not back then. I think it's a little bit different now with the city centre being gentrified to a degree. But as we approach London, if you were driving there like any big city, if you drive to London, the roads just get busier and busier and busier, and it gets more crazy. But going into London on the Grand Union Canal because a lot of the holiday boaters are also a bit intimidated to go into the city. It gets quieter and quieter and quieter. So once we were going into Greater London, it was really strange because we hardly saw anyone, apart from you'd see pockets of other liverboard boats, often in kind of boatyards or moorings, which would be locked away. 
sort of not right on the towpath, as it were. And in fact, we went through an area of London called Southall, which is, you know, it's got, certainly got its social problems. And in fact, it's where one of my great aunties lived. And my mum used to spend a huge amount of her summer holidays at this house that backs onto the canal in Southall. And there was a funny story of my great uncle George, who was great at many things, but not at boat building. And one summer when my mum stayed with them, she actually built, he actually built a boat in the back garden. And at the end of the summer holidays, that got all the neighbours round and George put his boat in the canal and it promptly sank. So never even had a maiden voyage. So we got into London and really we hardly saw anyone until bang, we were in Notting Hill, which I guess everyone's heard of because of the film, you know? Quite a posh area, but also a really cool multicultural area as well. They have the Notting Hill Carnival, you know, famous Caribbean, you know, celebration of culture in August. So it was just amazing to enter into London and to go there. Well, pretty much every boat has got a bike. Because if you imagine you're on this narrow boat, you're, you know, down the River Thames or or one of the canals, you might be a long way from a road, okay? And also, even if you're near a road where you move your boat and then you've got to go and get your vehicle. So pretty much everyone's uh, liveaboard boat has got bikes on the roof. It's just standard. And a lot of boaters will have bike trailers as well. Now, I don't know what it's like where you live, you know, listeners, wherever you're listening. Um, here in Bern, in Switzerland, a bike trailer is standard. It's just normal. You know, you see families tooling around with their kids in the back, or you see tradesmen with their tools in a bike trailer. But back in 2002, it was a bit weird in London. But you'd see all sorts of things on the towpath, lots of handmade accoutrements for people to go with their bikes. A lot of people will have folding bikes, you know, Bromptons and things to keep them indoors. And it was certainly the bikes on the roof that got us the most hassle. You know, people getting on the boat at night, trying to nick the bikes. And it was always a little bit scary because I'm no tough guy, right? So you'd be asleep or dropping off to sleep. And you can tell when someone gets on your boat, it's a narrow boat to steel. And as soon as someone gets on, the whole boat goes boom, boom, and it moves and you hear the noise. And you're waking up and you're like, is that one guy? Is that ten guys? Is it one crazy tough guy? Is it a little weedy guy? You don't know. But you can't let them steal your bike. So, you know, more than once, it wasn't a regular thing, but way more than once this would happen. And I'd have to bang on the roof, the boat, f*** off, you know, and then go off. And I'd have to go out there, you know, normally in my underwear or whatever, and face whoever was there. And luckily for me, they'd always run off. But you never know. You know, you never know who's going to be there and what they're going to be about. But obviously they don't know who you are either. (laughs) The canal is essentially a road of water. You've got enough for two narrow boats to pass each other, plus a little bit more sometimes. And then there's a towpath along the side 
the towpath is perfect for bicycles or Ooh. sometimes isn't. Sometimes it isn't perfect for bicycles, but sometimes it is. Yeah, I mean, obviously, with there being so many thousands of miles of canals, there is quite a variety. So there are wider gauge canals and outer gauge canals. There are canals which are really just canalised rivers, and they're quite river-like. There will be weirs dropping off into rivers, you know, which make it river-like. But yeah, if you imagine, it's like a hidden world. It's a complete parallel hidden world away from the world of automobile-dominated Mr. Stork bullshit. For, for want of a better word, it really is a kind of fairyland in, in a good sense, and it dips in and out of the urban areas. And so, you get, yeah, you've got this very narrow ribbon of water, which, like you say, could be, you know, 13, 14 feet across. And sometimes it can be very entertaining passing boats coming the other way. You Sometimes it's so narrow both boats have to shimmy round each other, you know? You both have to move one way and the other way together. You've got two skilled skippers, that can happen. Um, but narrow boating is a contact sport, so the boats do bash into each other and such as well. And then the towpath, which is normally the width of a horse, will be going up alongside the canal. And the bridges that um, went over the canal are often really low. So it'd be an archway. They're often very beautiful and picturesque. And if you're walking or indeed cycling under the bridge, if you don't duck, you can bash your head. And in fact, I remember when I was living in Manchester, this is when I was kind of like a... I wasn't a mad keen sports cyclist at the time. I just used my bike for knocking around. I was about 20, 19 or 20. And I remember a friend of mine, let's call him Mark, not his real name, but... Mark used to really, really like psychedelic drugs, right? So what Mark used to do is he'd go out with his mates on their mountain bikes in Manchester and they'd take loads of magic mushrooms, that was his favourite thing. And they'd have as many torches, like mag lights and things, as they could tape onto their bikes because this was before the time of these amazing mountain bike night riding lights. So there were as many bag lights as they could get on their bikes and they'd cycle off down the canal at night and there's no street lights or anything and he said to me he goes sure it's amazing because it's like i'm a disembodied head flying that's how he experienced it and um he described to me uh, one day this morning i saw him and he had a completely shaved head this guy and it was all cut up and there's all these sort of uh, wounds on his head and he said yeah i was cycling along at speed and i didn't see the bridge and his head just scraped along the bridge which can be quite long and it took a lot of the skin off so i think that kind of sums up urban canals as people do go there to do mad stuff and that can be part of the entertainment or sometimes not so entertaining if you're living there as well and then in a practical sense you moor up your boat and to get into the town, you could either walk or you could pop the bike off the top of your boat and go to the pub or go grocery shopping or whatever. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you can always moor in towns because obviously most towns want people to stop. They want people to come in and, uh, and spend money and such. Uh, but sometimes town moorings aren't the best depending on where you are. Pretty much always they're okay. And in fact, in certain areas of London, what they used to do on the visitor moorings, I've no idea if they still do, because I'm so many years out of it, but there would be gates on the towpath, and after dark, the council would come and lock the gates, so the boaters would have a bit of peace. 
And also, and I think this was the priority for the council, is the people, the, the rich Islingtonites and Camdenites that lived in these big houses whose back gardens overlooked the towpath. They wouldn't have people climbing in to rob them from the towpath. Okay, so you're starting a business from the boat dealing with cycling. Yeah, yeah well, that's, there's a little story sort of preceding that as well. So, like I said, I'm from a cycling family, always rode bikes, certainly as a narrow boater using bikes, using trailers and such. And I wasn't working in the bike trade until we first got the boats. And I was kind of like, well, I want to do something different. Down in Devon and Cornwall, I've been working in horticulture, and I could do you a whole podcast all about permaculture and forest farming and agroforestry and, you know, all that kind of thing. But we're not on that trip today. And I thought, okay, well, what am I going to do in London, right? What what am I going to do that's different? So I decided to train as a bike mechanic. So I, I did a level two in Guild's course as a bike mechanic. And as I was setting off, I got the train to the training centre. I pulled an old bike out of a skip, an old British Eagle touring bike. And I took that to the training course. So through each unit, we did hubs and brakes and gears and all the rest of it. Like we do at Cycle Systems Academy now. And I refurbished this bike completely. You know, I re-sprayed the frame and, and did it. Re- you know, built new wheels for it. And then at the end of the course, I bought a load of tools from the training centre and I put them on the back of the bike and got the train back and then rode along the towpath. And in fact, that was when the boat was in Reading, which is in between Oxford and London. And after a while, we actually ended up taking the boat to Oxford and we lived there for five years. And this was still in our pre-child sort of days, you know, living fairly free and easy, working in bike shops, playing music, doing theatre. Are you familiar with the HBO BBC series, His Dark Materials? Definitely recommend it for anyone listening. And also... Philip Pullman, on, right? Philip Pullman, yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. The books are better anyway, as ever. Although I think the series was great. Well, those books, of course, have got the Egyptians in, haven't they? And the Egyptians are the narrowboaters. And while they are completely fictional, the Oxford that Philip describes, the Jericho part of Oxford that Philip describes, is where we lived. So we, we took our boat and we lived in Jericho and we were Egyptians in that part of Oxford. Fantastic videos on YouTube called The Battle of the Egyptians which was a part of a campaign we were part of, because British Waterways at the time, who were the government, um, Quango, which means like quasi-autonomous body, who ran the waterways, at the time were just asset stripping. They were just selling everything off to developers, you know, for a quick book. They sold off the very last working boatyard in Jericho. And in fact, this boatyard is in these books. You know, it's it's like Lyra plays there, I think, in in the first book. So it was much beloved for the local community and they didn't want these luxury apartments built there. What we did as narrowboaters is we occupied it. We we just squatted it and we got cranes in to crane boats out onto the boatyard so developers can't come in and build it. And it ended up with this really dramatic eviction, which is on the YouTube videos, The Battle of Egyptians. And if you read the lives, you can see me playing the Ellen Pipes, that's my instrument, the Irish Pipes. You can see me playing the Irish Pipes on those. So we kind of lived this life, which is all fun and games. And uh, I was working in bike shops at the time. And I worked 
at a bike shop called the Oxford Cycle Workshop that's no longer with us, which was a kind of community-based place. One of the things they did there is they did the Bike Doctor, which is a business model which seems to be really common worldwide now, but I've not seen it before. And it's when the bike mechanic visits the workplace. So we take our eight freight, Mike Burroughs eight freight freight bikes to big employers in Oxford, which is mostly the colleges, right? And we fix bikes on site and that's quite a nice business. It's the most profitable part of the co-op. So when my wife got pregnant and we were like, oh, you know, we've lived this kind of penniless city life for years and it's been fine, but now we're responsible for another being. And maybe it would be a bit irresponsible to carry on with the way we've been. So we decided to kind of get wheel and get careers, but I don't think we were that employable in terms of the capitalist system, right? You know, big holes in the CV, you could say. So essentially, we decided to move to London, where the streets are paid for gold, and set up our own business. I said, look, I'm just going to nick this idea from the Oxford Cycle Workshop and do it in London. So the great thing about living on the boat is that we could literally untie the ropes and cruise on down the River Thames. And the River Thames, obviously people know it because it goes through London, but it goes all the way from Gloucestershire right through to Letchlade, its navigable head, all the way down to, of course, the sea in Kent. And we got to know the Thames intimately over the years. I could have told you every pub, every mooring spot. I even ran a, a floating music festival on the River Thames for a few years for traditional Irish music, but that, as they say, is another story. So we cruised on down the river, and I didn't want to leave Oxford. I loved it. It's a great city. And I might have shed a little tear as we cruised underneath the Oxford Ring Road as we officially left the city with our son who was six months old at the time in a little car seat tied on the roof of the boat. And the bikes, we got to London, and I remember pulling up in London, and we had a dog on the boat as well. And we pulled up in Islington in London, and this London geezer walked past, and he saw me on the on the narrowboat, on the tiller. He said, look at that geezer. He's got everything. He's got the woman. He's got the baby. He's got the boat. He's even got the dog. And of course he was right. So there I was feeling very pleased with myself. There I was, the man with everything. And what I also had, what he didn't see, is right next to my son's cot in the back cabin of the boat, I had inner tubes and brake cables and cassettes and chains and bottom brackets and greases and rim tapes. I had my bike on the roof, I had a trailer um, on the roof and I was ready, like Dick Whittington, to make it go in the, in the big bad city of London. We just, we just put our best foot forward, okay? so. I got a few names from the local authorities in London, like the local governments. I, put, I phoned them up and got meetings with them. I said, hey, I've got this great new way to promote cycling in London. And I went down to Transport for London and Greater London Authorities headquarters in my suit and a little leather briefcase and all the rest of it. And it was just the right time to do that. Uh, we had an amazing mayor called Ken Livingston, who was mayor of London for eight years who'd actually run the Greater London Authority back in the 80s as well. He had decided to have an inner circle of three, all of whom were from the Green Party. And his deputy mayor was a woman called Jenny Jones, 
who is quite an amazing politician, really. And what Jenny Jones said to Ken Livingstone was, do you want to save billions, billions in transport infrastructure? And Ken was like, oh, yes, please. And she said, well, spend millions on cycling. So this was the start, really, of cycling being taken seriously in London, and then, of course, extending throughout the rest of Britain. It was a place where safe cycling infrastructure was just starting to be built. We had, you know, extra taxes on cars, so low emission zones and congestion charges. Driving was being discouraged, cycling was being encouraged. And big employers, of course, of course there are many, many, many in Greater London, big employers were being encouraged so that they were having their transport plans written with the local authorities in mind. How are your employees going to get to work? We'd like them to cycle. Will you put showers in at the workplace? Will you have a, a salary sacrifice scheme to help people buy bikes? The central government had this scheme where you could buy bikes from your salary each month. But what none of them had was a mechanic on site. So I would go to these people and say, well, look, what, these, what everyone needs is a bike doctor. And, and we're the best people at doing it. So we created a market for ourselves we created this market we were having contracts all around London we were fixing the bikes for the police fixing bikes for the ambulance service fixing bikes at law firms and train stations all over London I now had a team within six months I had a team of mechanics all going around on these big green freight bikes because it was all ethical and new age and completely bike based it was mental you know, and it was just getting into the capitalist world, really. And it was the time of The Wire, right? You know, the great HBO series, The Wire, which I still think is the greatest TV show ever made. And running a business in London is like The Wire, but without the guns. But it really did feel like that. It was competitive. It was hard. It was pressured. And we kind of thrived. We enjoyed that. But it was pretty exhausting as well. After a few years of doing bike doctors, we decided to open a mechanic training academy in London, initially. We opened that, we got venture capital investment for that, we got incredible support from the bike industry, like breathtaking support. People like Trek, like SRAM, like Specialized, Brompton, Peshley, Campagnolo, incredible support. And in fact, SRAM remains, you know, a really valuable training partner for us and sponsor. We opened this training academy and we noticed that these students were coming from all over the UK. So when we decided to leave that crazy city life behind and move back to Devon, and in fact move off the boats after 12 years on the boats, we moved our academy down to Devon in England as well, where it's still based. So Cycle Systems Academy, which is based on Dartmoor, a national park in southwest England, is a place where you can do government-approved engineering qualifications in bike mechanics. We love it. It's really a great, fun course or courses to do. You know, I guess like everyone, we've got our own podcast, so Cycle Systems Academy podcast, you can tune in. We've been appearing on lots of other people's podcasts, like The Bike Shop Show and all sorts of others. And after a while, you know, we realised there was a lot of people who wanted our education but couldn't come to the UK, especially at the moment, right? Although we have had quite a lot of international students. So we've launched Cycle Systems Online, which is just cyclesystemsonline.com. 
And it's a series of online courses which we've actually been building over years. Some of the content's video, some of the content's PDF, some of the content's photographic slideshow. And we put a tremendous amount of care and love into curating this journey of learning bike mechanics. And it starts at the complete beginner. So while Cycle Systems Academy is about training professionals, you can start at any level, but that's what we're doing. The Cycle Systems Online is really aimed at the moment, anyone who speaks English, it's all in English language for now, um, who wants to learn how to look after their bike. So if you want to get into no fear gears, no mistakes brakes, no swearing bearings, no big deal wheels, we got the courses for you. So that's the kind of sales pitch. But I've you know, I hope you can gather from listening to the interview that, you know, making money, making good money has never been a driving focus. We want to make a comfortable living. We want to have a security as much as you can in today's world. But we're just passionate about bikes. We just love it. And the great thing, I was leading Structure Academy for a long time. I'm not now because we live in Switzerland and the Academy's in the UK. That'd be a big commute. But... I often said to people it was the best job in the world because I love people, I love talking, as you can probably tell. So I really enjoyed delivering the lessons and sharing my knowledge and skills and experience. But what was amazing is most of the people who trained with us were coming from other backgrounds. So people from the military, people from the city, people from other trades, you know, people coming out of life's difficulties, you know, as well, physical illness, mental illness and such, wanting to rebuild. We would literally be helping people live their dreams. I've always wanted to run a bike hire company in the south of France. I've always wanted to have a bike mechanic studio or bike fit studio in my garage. And of course, lots of these people now have gone on to do just that. So it's a really satisfying, heartfelt family, the Cycle Systems family, because everyone that trains with us is part of our family for sure. So that's the vibe of Cycle Systems. That's what you're joining when you join us, either on social media or in person. So we've got Cycle Systems online, which you can join us on Facebook. That's where everything happens in terms of announcements and new things, etc. And also the community, you know, so you can ask questions and share your problems and get them answered. So that's just Facebook forward slash um, Cycle Systems Online. That should be really easy to find with any sort of search. Cyclesystemsonline.com is where you go on and you see all of the um, courses that are available, get signed up. It's it's the usual online educational experience. As in, it's been curated fantastically by professionals. We've done the content. The professionals have built it into an online platform. And it's all 100% money back guarantee. So there's absolutely no nothing to lose by going for that. If you're interested in the hands-on academy, you can go to cycle-systems.co.uk and that's all about training as a professional bike mechanic within the UK. Obviously, with travel restrictions, that isn't for everyone at the moment. We are very active on Twitter and Instagram, and that's just forward slash Cycle Systems Act, because that's as much as we can fit in. So Cycle Systems Act, and you'll find us on there. You'll see our photos. You'll even see some pictures of rides and all sorts of things happening in Switzerland, as well as what's going on at the Academy. Great. 
Brilliant. Okay, well, thanks so much for inviting me on. It's been really good fun. Cheers, Tom. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Hello, hello. This is Seven from sunny California, and I run the Sprocket Bike Marketplace app. I'm here to give you your ABC quick check. So the first thing I want you to do is squeeze those tires and see how firm they feel. Then pump them up anyway. I've broken the kneecap over this. There is no reason you should have the same happen to you. Next, check those brakes. Squeeze on the brake levers and push the bike forward. Then squeeze on them again and push it backwards. Make sure there's no funny business going on there. C. Check the chain, the crank, cogs, basically the whole drivetrain, and make sure everything is in full working order. For the quick, is the quick release check. Go over all your quick releases on your brakes, on your wheels, and anywhere else you might have them, and make sure they're nice and snug, make sure they're in their closed position, and make sure absolutely under no circumstances are there no parts of them missing. And anyway, after that, uh, before you roll, just Get on the bike and start off slow. Be attentive to sounds, pay attention to the way the bike feels and rides, and stop and look again at your bike if anything feels off. This has been the ABC Quick Check. Thanks for taking a listen. Enjoy the podcast. Off you go. time for the mid-roll gratitudes where we stop to give thanks to people who've helped out for following on podbean we have jay bjork clund three thank you very much and rich hill 414 thanks very much for following anywhere that you follow the show whether it be youtube on social media on instagram or facebook or anywhere it really helps the show to raise up a little bit in the search results so thank you very much for anybody who's followed us anywhere thanks also to mountain bike dave in montana for leaving us a nice review on itunes we we'll give a special shout out to all the people who came to the weathersfield bicycle festival and swap meet that was awesome and an amazing day i really appreciate a lot of the people who came and and talked to me about the podcast and how they like listening to it that was really humbling and uh thank you very much and especially within that group uh wilson hoyer had a book that you're going to hear about in the future called yeah i had a garden bike and that's going to be a future segment on the show so thank you everybody who came to that want to thank everybody who's requested and responsibly placed stickers around the world uh you can get a packet of free stickers just by emailing me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com and i will send you out some stickers to respond share. If you want, I can also include a sticker from the WHS Bicycle Club, which I also run. And if you stick and post about it online, that would just make their day to see their sticker all over the world in different places. I'd like to thank Drumroll Coffee in Weathersfield, Connecticut for making the Bike Karma blend. This was amazing. I felt like Steve Martin when the new phone book gets there, but I had a coffee named after the show is organic and fair trade and it also is half calf half decaf so thanks very much to drumroll coffee thanks to all the volunteers who helped with the bicycles on maine big shout out to kevin sullivan who stored a bunch of the bicycle donations at his house so i didn't have to this time thank you so much for that 
would like to thank my small but dedicated group of Patreon supporters. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help to support the cost of the show. Just go to Patreon and search up Bike Karma. Normally, there should be one show a month, and I am a bit behind, but I'm going to try and make it up to you over the summer now that school's out. just want to say happy trails to Tony Chirolis, who is on his way across the country by bike. And that brings us to thanking Fred Thomas at the Frame and Wheel. Fred's a nice guy who owns several small bicycle businesses, one of which is the Frame and Wheel, which will help you to get more time, space, and cash. He is a ninja-level expert at selling things online that are related to the bicycle. He photographs it for you, sets the prices correctly, knows the market, knows how to navigate all those crazy little rules and regs on eBay, knows how to pack and ship like a boss, knows how to deal with difficult people who are difficult people, and does all that so you don't have to. So if you have a bicycle or parts or accessories, and periodically you think, hey, I'm going to sell them myself. Well, you haven't yet. And if for a second you just think, maybe I never will, why not just use the frame and wheel? Turn those things you aren't using into more time, space, and cash and get them back out there where people will be loving them again. Fred has many options such as putting it towards a charity that you care for or perhaps putting it towards a purchase of a new AD bike, a company he also runs. You can check out all those different options on the frameandwheel.com. Now, back to the show. One of the things that you don't hear a lot about talk together is cycling and fire. We hear a lot about walking through fire, Johnny Cash, religious rites of passage, magicians even. And that episode of The Office where Pam walks over the hot fire coals while nobody's looking. I mean, you're probably even now thinking of like, are my tires rated to roll over certain temperatures? I mean, the tarmac in some places in the world does get quite hot. Perhaps you're struggling to think of any scenario where cycling and fire would overlap. Well, at least one place where that's happened is Iowa. And that's what our next story is about. So I looked behind me to see if we needed to stop, and I saw we had most of the group with us, all the bike headlights uh, lighting up gravel road in the night. So we turned right, and I saw smoke uh, billowing up to the left of the road. And at first I thought it was just someone having a little campfire or a garbage fire, but the, the smoke kept extending. And as we went over the next hill, I could just see the whole left side of the road bright orange and lit up. And I slowed down a little because I wanted to make sure if is the farm on fire, is the road on fire? It's not something you uh, normally see on a Monday night gravel ride. Did you feel like there was any danger? No, I'm pretty good at gravel riding. Oh, you mean the fire? The fire, yeah. Oh. Hi, I'm Matt Berkey in Iowa City, Iowa, and I'm a Gravel Scout. So the Gravel Scouts is a community group ride project. We are a community organization open to all and focused on the non-race side of cycling. So we have our three rules are be nice, be prepared, and be safe. 
So we have a ride every Monday night, 6.30, from a local bike shop, World of Bikes. Do 20 to 30 miles, and we have a volunteer lead and a volunteer sweep. They keep everyone on the route, keep everyone together, and we stop two or three times just to make sure everyone's there. We don't drop anyone or leave anyone behind. We're very lucky here in Iowa City and Johnson County that you can ride your own adventure, that there's plenty of gravel roads easily accessible all around. I live less than a mile from a gravel road if I want want to get out there and start grinding. So a typical route is there isn't one. Uh, it's a mix of pavement, a uh, mix of gravel, sometimes grass, sometimes B roads. And it's always kind of an adventure and a surprise. You never know what you're going to see, especially as you go through the year, through the whole farming process here in Iowa. And do you want to just dispel the myth that Iowa is flat while we're on it? <laughs> as flat, I guess, is pretty relative. The eastern half of Iowa, where I live, isn't completely flat. Uh, we did a weekend ride that was 50 miles and over 3,000 feet of climbing. So there's there's no like really long steep climbs. It's all kind of uh, punchy rolling hills. So there's never a descent long enough to fully recover. As soon as you're down, you got to go back up again, or you just have to lay down on the side. We were torturing two guys on the weekend ride, and we didn't see them for a while. And on one really steep climb, they finally came back and said they said they just had to get off the bike and lay down for a bit. <laughs> and there's plenty of nice places to do that. There are very nice. On the we just had a, a Sunday ride this past week. There were nine of us doing 40 miles in the under 40 degree weather with some wind. And while we were waiting for everyone, we just kind of laid down in a ditch to hide from the wind and took a nice little nap. People driving by just waved and. Those, uh, they think they're those crazy bike riders. <laughs> so we do about 20 to 30 miles every Monday. It's kind of tied to sunrise, sunset. So we're doing about 20 to 24 mile routes right now. But then in the peak of summer, when we have maximum sunlight, we'll start doing closer to 30 mile rides. You never know when you're going to be done because the, the rides, the groups just keep getting bigger and bigger, which is great. That's the main goal of our group is we want more people riding bikes, more people exploring the different roads around Iowa. Two weeks ago, we had 60 people in the second week of March. Last night, we did a 24-mile ride, and we weren't expecting a lot because it was in the low 40s, high 30s. Chad, who runs the Gravel Scouts Instagram page and posts all the routes, he thought we would have 15 or less, and we had 30 people doing a gravel ride in the cold wind in Iowa, and that's just amazing. Our, uh, our best last year was we had 80 people come to a casual gravel ride and just kind of uh, looking behind me and just seeing the long row of lights going down farm roads was just amazing. To me, it doesn't sound that unimaginable just having done Ragbri a couple of years ago, <laughs> you can see, you can see that same thing. It's just like I can picture that in my mind because of that experience. But that's amazing for like a non-Ragbri ride is to have that many people show up. It's great. To, yeah, to have to have sixty people on our second week in March for a volunteer, <laughs> an all volunteer, all casual ride was uh, was great. I led. I, that was the ride I led with the fire. You don't often hear about fire and cycling. You hear about flooding, you hear about wind, you hear about the heat, you hear about the cold, but 
literally fire what happened <laughs> that last week when we had 60 people i was uh, leading the ride and what the the lead volunteer does is they just they have the route plotted plotted out on their wahoo or garmin or their memory and they decide uh, when to stop and regroup and so i'm always trying to not stop too little not stop too often we don't want to drop people and make them feel bad we want them to have a nice casual ride with us Chad asked me which way I wanted to go, so I, I said let's go east because I like I really like the gravel roads out east. I live on that side of town. It's a nice rolling hills, beautiful Midwest countryside. And as we turned a corner, I saw smoke in the distance, which is not uncommon when you're biking through the farmland. Uh, people are burning garbage or small fires all the time. But uh, we came up alongside the road, and the whole it looked like the road was on fire which is unusual for gravel. What we came across was just a ditch burning, which you see in the spring and fall from time to time. Do they burn ditches out there in Connecticut? I've never been. No, no they don't. Uh, so the, the locals, <laughs> uh, I wasn't ready for that answer. The, the locals just kind of burn ditches because it uh, removes any accumulated vegetation, helps recycle nutrients into the soil, and just helps with the irrigation along the, between the road, the ditch, and their farmland. And so the whole ditch, kind of, not the whole ditch, but a long, a very long portion of it was just on fire. And we were rolling through there and it wasn't planned or anything. It just kind of a very funny happenstance that we were going that way. And the wind was kind of blowing into us as we were rolling along and I got my phone out, a lot of others did. A uh, few of the riders, much better photographers than I am, got off and got pictures and videos of people riding through. But yeah, you're just riding along on a casual gravel road with a fire to your left, smoke billowing in your eyes. And not a usual Monday night gravel experience, but that's why you never know what you're going to get when you uh, go out and explore the farm roads. You took one of my favorite excuses for not going biking is sitting in the backyard with a fire going and you combined it with the moving motion of a gravel ride. I did take both of those. You can't do everything well. I, I took a picky bar out of my pocket and tried to roast it like a marshmallow. It was just slightly warm. It wasn't that it wasn't any better than just a regular picky bar. But yeah, I had that nice kind of campfire smoke feeling and smell the whole rest of the ride mixed with a nice coating of gravel dust. Did you feel like there was any danger? Uh, no, the, the locals, the people who own the land were out there on their 4x4s and tractors. They looked like they knew how to burn a ditch before. The wind was, wasn't very strong. We do have wind advisories against fires out here on the Great Plains. And then the, the ditch ends abruptly against the road so there's no vegetation in the road so I never felt like the fire was going to leap out of the ditch towards me. I did ride in the middle of the road. I didn't ride right next to the fire. That would have been a better video. I got about 30 seconds of footage of it going not too fast. It was hard to estimate distance because it was it didn't feel real. It was a very surreal cycling moment for me. I've done a lot of gravel rides with this group. I've, I've touched almost every gravel road in the county now. 
but that was a brand new experience for me and then just having the biking by that fire up close and like you I enjoy a nice campfire to have that the wind and smoke in my face the experience I love from cycling mixed with the warmth of the fire the crackling noise the aroma of the fire it was just kind of a, a mixing of sensations you usually don't have together and it, it was almost a dreamlike a zen dreamlike state uh, to be able to bike through that it was very fun it's a great experience for everyone. I'm glad we had such a big group to to do that. I would be hard pressed to find an area near me that would burn ditches as a normal matter of course. So I mean, Iowa's looking like it might be the destination place to go to for such things if you want to bike and have the ditch burning. <laughs> you have to have the right time of year, so it's either spring or fall. The wind has to be just right. Uh, but I did write down in my notebook the Flaming Ditch Grand Fondo. <laughs> I'll get you a ticket if I can get this off the ground. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I'll bring my I'll bring a press pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't get off the bike because I'm always. Uh, I get made fun of for always wanting to be in the front of the group no matter what. So that's why I volunteer to lead the rides because I'm already up there. It's hard for me to take it easy sometimes. But yeah, I'm glad some of the some of the folks got off the bikes and got great footage and uh, great photos of it. Definitely a unique adventure that day. So that's not the weirdest thing that's happened? There was another Gravel Scout ride where they were going around a corner and all of a sudden the road was filled with baby goats, uh, filled with kids that had escaped their pen. A local youth came up on his 4x4 and, said, and explained that the baby goats were on the loose and uh, running rampant like fugitives. And uh, the gravel scouts helped corral them back to their pen. What did you call that segment afterwards? I should have named it Baby Goat Corner, but um, there's, there's already plenty of segments out there. I haven't thought of any good... I haven't thought of a segment better than there already are out there. The, the heartwarming one, I was leading a ride last summer, and there were 60 to 70 of us on the ride. We passed a farmhouse early on uh, in the front group, and then people kept coming, and I was looking for the sweep. The sweep is our volunteer that they keep the back of the group together, make sure no one gets lost or left behind. And so I hadn't heard from them in a few minutes, so I started to bike back towards the uh, where we came from. As I was biking back, I saw an, an, an older couple standing in their driveway, and I uh, just started chatting them up. You always, when you're biking the gravel roads out here in Iowa, you just wave at everyone. I'm sure you wave at people as you're biking around. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you give the farmer wave. I'm a waver. Yeah. 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 You give a nod or a finger wave and get it back. And uh, this older couple, Mike and Jenny, they said they were sitting in the living room. And they saw a few bikes bike by. And then they saw 10 bikes, and they went outside, and they they said they saw over 60, and they'd never seen so many bicycles at once. And they told me it was the, one of the most exciting Mondays they'd had in a long time. I took that opportunity to just do, to do outreach and talk to people and talk about cycling, and they told us if, if I was ever in the area, I could stop by for water or camp out in their yard. Yeah, the people when you're touring through Iowa are really welcoming and hospitable and they kind of get it. 
Uh, yeah, I think Radbri helped a lot with that, of giving a positive image to cycling. I feel really spoiled here in Iowa and especially in Johnson County. I rarely have a bad interaction with drivers. I, and I've done city roads, gravel roads, state highways. Pretty much everyone always gives me plenty of room. They're always waving, slowing down. And of course, there are still um, accidents. There are still bad passes. Um, I like to count the wins more than I count the close calls. In Ragbri 2019, we did the state in like a week, and across the entire state, I only noted one really bad aggressive driver. One out of the whole state. Uh, that was not me. The route didn't go near me that year. <laughs> right, Ragbri is another one of those kind of surreal bike experiences. And yeah, I was in the middle of it one day, and I, just, I looked to the left and to the right, front and back, and went... There's a thousand of us just riding along the road right now, like it's completely normal, and it's amazing. That's, that's the magic of it, yeah. And then, yeah, and just having the small towns, I love I love being from the Midwest, and I love small towns in the Midwest, and just having them all be excited when you show up. Yeah, I mean, Iowa's great for cycling, and it's not just for Ragbri, the one week of the year for Ragbri. You're an ambassador of types? So I'm a Bike Iowa City ambassador. Uh, this is our first year with the program, so, so far I'm doing a great job, I guess. But I'm um, just trying to promote Iowa, not just Ragbri, but as a, a cycling destination. We have So I bike commute pretty much 12 months a year, through the snow, through the heat in the summer, through the rain. It's a little crazy. And sometimes when it's so cold in winter and I'll drive, I'll see someone else out biking. So I know there's people that are more hardcore than me. But we have, yeah, we have bike events through from the spring through the fall. Uh, we have different gravel races. We have different road criteriums. We have Grand Fondos all the time. In Bike Iowa City, we're putting on a new type of adventure race called Core 4. And that's for the four different types of roads you'll do on the race. So it'll be pavement, gravel, uh, B-roads, and single track. Are you familiar with B-roads out in Connecticut? No. No. What are... What? What would you designate as a B-road? So uh, B-roads are they're not kept up as well, so they're even they're even taken care of less than a gravel road. They're usually dirt and mud and sometimes just grass grown over. It can be a B-road can be anywhere between um, a fun to treacherous depending on the weather. If it's been raining a while, the B-roads are all mud and I did one where I, I sunk in so deep I couldn't spin the wheels. I had to hike out with my cleats filled with uh, mud. But yeah, B-roads are typically a dirt road, uh, mostly used by farmers. So there's tractor tracks. Uh, the B-roads we did yesterday, there were horse hoof tracks in them. So they're just old farm roads that they, the signs say, enter at your own caution, which kind of adds a nice thrilling part of adventure to any new people we bring on Monday Night Gravel. So, and if you want to explore any of those gravel roads or those B-roads, our cycling club, the Gravel Scouts, all of those, all of our routes are published on ridewithgps.com. Just search Gravel Scouts and anytime you're in Johnson County, you can have an adventure from 20 miles to 100 miles. So we do, uh, we'll post weekend rides kind of just based on the weather and how tired, if we're not tired from other riding. If somebody would like to see the pretty cool pictures of you guys riding through fire or maybe they want to learn more about your club uh, where would they go to find out all that all the gravel scouts information is on their instagram page which is run by chad and uh, just shout out to chad he's a great guy he runs the gravel scout social media pages he knows every road 
in the county like the back of his hand. He makes every route. So that's just Instagram.com slash the Gravel Scouts. There you can find a link to our Ride with GPS page. You can get every possible route through the county you can think of. You can look up me and the other bike ambassadors at bikeiowacity.com. And uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Matt Berkey or my Twitter at MR underscore Berkey. And we have photos of us going through the fire on our socials there. And I'll send some to you to post on your socials with this episode. One, one more plug. So for the Bike Iowa City, we designed a bike jersey. And by we, I mean, uh, I contacted a friend of mine, Ophelia, who's a graphic designer. I always thought a topographic map, topographic lines would make a really cool bike jersey design. And uh, I'd worked on a jersey like that with Ophelia before. And we did the one this year with Bike Iowa City. So I helped in picking the color red for the pockets. And that's it. Ophelia did all the work. And those bike jerseys are available through BikeIowaCity.com and Primal's website through April 5th if you'd like to pre-order a Bike Iowa City jersey. Probably would look great on Ragbri. All right. Thank you very much for sharing with us. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Please contact me or us here if you ever want to talk about biking in Iowa or graveling in Iowa. I drew an important line in the sand for myself a long time ago, which was that no matter how much I felt strongly about something, I would not talk politics in this show. And this is not an exception. So once again, this is not about politics, though it involves somebody who is in politics. Now, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or Progressive, you know that the mission of this show is to bring people together through the love of bicycles and cycling to see our shared humanity. My perhaps naive hope is that we'll see each other as human beings and hopefully all get to a better place. There are very few people who've tried to shed all their humanity, so when we see our humanity in others, it makes us all better. So something happened within the last couple of weeks that I think we need to talk about as cyclists. So forget your politics for a second, forget your biases for a second, just think of yourself as a bicycle-loving person, somebody who smiles when they're on a bike. So in the now famous video, we see the president riding, coming to a stop. And then he falls over. Now, there's not a cyclist in this world who's tried to clip in or use straps, whether it's the old style or the new style or SPD or Crank Brothers or whatever. Look pedals for roadies. Everyone who's tried them has fallen down. So you may disagree with the man on his politics, and that's fine. But as a cyclist, you need to defend him as a cyclist. When somebody starts talking smack or trash about him because of falling down on a bike, you need to stop them right there and say, the dude is old and he's still biking. And he just ended up doing something that everyone does. Any of you guys ride bikes? 
Well, they have some that have this thing you put your toe in. It constrains your foot so it doesn't slide up the pedal. When I was getting off the bike, it got stuck on the right side. Even those of us much younger, with tons of experience, sometimes we get going and we forget we're clipped in. Or our straps get a little caught. So you don't need to defend him on his politics. You don't need to agree with him or me or whatever. But you owe it to your cycling soul to make sure that you defend anybody who falls down while they're clipped in. It is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of getting out there and being on a bike. So the classy thing to do is to defend any fellow cyclist who falls down while they're clipped or strapped in. Hopefully that's just one little thing we can agree on. And I promise that's the closest we'll get to politics on this show. So it's a safe space for non-political thoughts. Okay, I've said what I needed to say about that. So let's just close the summary. We're all humans who love bikes. And when anybody's clipped or strapped in, we all occasionally fall down. Phew. Well, I'm glad that's all cleared up. Let's go fix everything else. Well, we've gotten to the end of another ride on the Bike Karma Bicycle and Cycling Stories podcast. Thanks for coming along. I'd like to thank, as always, Keller Glass and the band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music. You can check them out at mobjackmusic.com or anywhere fine music is purveyed. All the other music used on the show is royalty-free, and we appreciate those artists as well. Thank you. Thank you to our guests, Sean Lally, Matt Berkey, and the Gravel Scouts, and of course, Seven from the Sprocket app. If you have any comments or suggestions, or perhaps have a story that you might think would go well on the show, or perhaps you have a business that might be a good pairing for the show as well for advertising, you can contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. You can also use that email address if you'd like to become part of our free sticker army, our responsible sticker army. The Bike Karma podcast and all of our logos and symbols and social media are all the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyright and trademark, are asserted and reserved. And that, of course, does not include the music or the short snippets that were used in the presidential segment. Well, folks, I know that this episode was a long time coming out, and I appreciate your patience. It doesn't mean I've run out of stuff, it just means I ran out of time and energy. But I'm back and recharged, and hopefully going to make it up to you over the summer. The not-so-annual comedy episode is in the works, as well as a definite episode for both July and August in addition to this one. Even though it's July, let's call this the June one. Anyway, till next time, keep it wheeled.